there's um there's kind of a famous or maybe this is job's water and i'm not going to drink after job that's there's just doesn't feel right um there's a uh, famous or maybe infamous con man uh, who wrote a book called catch me if you can and there was a movie made out of it but i read the book i was into him long before the movie okay because I'm cool like that. But anyway, he, he, he had like a lot of these fake jobs. He was, they were real jobs, but he, had, he was kind of a fake in the role. And one of them, he talks about how he was a college professor. He made up a resume, interviewed, and became a college professor. I have no idea why he wanted to do that. He didn't even have a high school GED. And he said what he would do is he got the textbook, and he would read a chapter ahead, get up and he'd lecture on it, he would never take questions because he couldn't answer them. Or maybe he would, he would bounce the question back to his, his uh, uh, class to answer the question. And so I, I feel a little bit like that this morning, just a little bit. Like I've read a chapter ahead. Uh, the par- uh, passage we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to get to dive into, has really I, I, has worked me over. And it's, it's not because it's hard to understand it's actually, I think, a very simple, beautiful, encouraging, and convicting and exposing passage, and it's been, it's been working on me. I feel maybe like, I've never done one, but like when you do a juice cleanse and you're not sure if you're going to faint or vomit, but it feels really good, and I, I think that's kind of how I feel right now. Um, and so if you will uh, come with me, I think if, if you will uh, listen hard and let the Spirit work on you tonight, that might happen for you too. Um, I'm just reminding you that I'm, I'm just a fellow struggler, just along with you. Sometimes we think that people that stand up here, they've got it figured out, and that is not true. Maybe sometimes it is, um, but we are on this journey together through this passage. And so uh, let's pray before we begin. God, you are holy and we are not. Uh, we know just a small amount And we act on even smaller amounts of what we know about you. And we know that in times past, we've read how you've given yourselves to your people and there's revival that's happened and kingdoms are upended and kings change and and, uh, the people change. Miraculous things happen. And God, we're here asking for that this whole week. What else would get us here on a Friday night? And so God, I ask that you would bless the hearts that are open this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when I'm, I grew up in a church, and so a lot of Bible passages I've heard so many times, I might not have them memorized, but they kind of, if I'm not careful, they pass in one ear and out the other. And so I I try to shake myself up just so I can kind of take a different look at a passage that I've heard a lot. And so if you will allow me tonight, I am not going to read from the ESV. I know, shocking, okay? I am going to read from the message by Gene Peterson, John 15, verses 1 through 8. And I just want to kind of shake you out of hearing this passage that, that maybe you've heard a lot. So if you'll, uh, you actually can listen. You don't have to follow along. <laughs> All right, so John 15, 1. I am the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so that it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message I have spoken. Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you, in the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. When when you're joined with me and I with you, the relation, intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. 
separated your keys. Okay, I think we're okay, right? Okay. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up, and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves home with me, and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who he is. And when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. So, it's a whole metaphor about a vine. And I know tonight, when I look out here, I'm, I'm looking mainly, largely, at a, an agrarian group of people, right? I mean, you know what it's like to... You came in here with dirt lodged under your fingernails, and you, you know what it's like to have the sun on your back, the wind in your... the plow satchel of seed. I'm getting a lot of quizzical looks. Did I read this wrong? I want you to raise your hand if you're a farmer. I've got one hand, okay? Ra- okay, so I've read this really wrong. Raise your hand if your parents were, a far- were farmers or are farmers, had a farm. I've got a few. We've got a handful. Let's go one generation back. Your grandparents, you heard tell of a farm. <laughs> You, you might have visited it. Okay, we've got a few now. We had to go three generations back to get a sprinkling of farmers in this room, and we're reading about a very specific type of garden. Tell me if you've at least visited the Lincoln Park Zoo farm section. Okay, we got, we got a few there. Okay, good. So when we are, it's astonishing, right? We all probably ate three meals today, maybe two might be one or two of you super spiritual people who are fasting right now, but we have a pantry full of food at home. I don't because my kids eat it all the time, but you probably do. And yet none of us, very few of us, except for one in the back, is a farmer. Uh, And so when we read a passage that talks about a vine and a vineyard and planting and bearing fruit, I think we've got to kind of get out of our normal context, right? And we've got to think like maybe the disciples thought when they heard Jesus say these words. And so that's what I want to do. And when I, when I read, kind of was studying this passage, I real, uh, one of the things that stuck out to me, it says that wine was extremely, extremely prized in the Hebrew culture, the Mediterranean culture. And the reason was that rain could not be counted on. It would rain really hard for a while and then be scarce. And so water was sometimes available and sometimes not. And the reason that relates to wine is that the grape in the grapevine, apparently, and I'm told this because I don't know this first person, is that it did not require a lot of water to grow that. And it produced a sustainable, non-perishable, drinkable product. And so it was highly prized. Um, And I'll I'll read uh, just a a verse here. The, the, The Israelites so prized this that they, it was built into their culture and God talked about how they were his prized vine. So listen to Psalm 80, 7 through 9. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. And so the vine being so prized became the way they viewed their attachment to God. They were his vine that he planted. And so it was just built into their culture. But the problem was, is actually most of the time you look at this metaphor throughout scripture, it's used negatively because the Israelites were not doing what God wanted. He had, he had 
planted them. He had tended to them. And they would not produce the fruit he desired. And so you'll see verses like the next one I'm going to read in Isaiah 5, 3 through 5. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? All right, I'll keep reading. Uh, What more was there to do for my vineyard? And what more was there that I have not done it? This is awkward. (laughs) Pay no attention to what is going on right here. I, I, uh, I speak to hearing loss patients all day long, and so I can bring it if I don't have a microphone, okay? All right. All right, let me start that verse over. I'm going to take a drink of water. Isaiah 5, 3 through, uh, 5, 3 through 5. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. God is so disappointed that he must tear out this vine. And, and yet, despite this, again, through the generations, the vine was this prized thing. And so the, the Hebrew people believed just by nature of their birth, the blood running through their veins, the common ancestor that they had, that they were attached to God. They were his people just by nature of being born a Hebrew. Can you imagine that? Being born with a certain amount of blood in your veins or a, a certain type or a certain ancestor, maybe a certain color of your skin, and that you, you think that you're afforded uh, uh, some sort of a stature, some sort of place in society, that's unheard of today, isn't it? So the, the, right. so the, the problem actually goes deeper because it was a spiritual connection. They believed this one true God was only attached to them and that their birth uh, let them have that privilege. And so uh, I just said it a second ago. <laughs> I, let, I, I led into it. I, my day job is I talk to hearing loss patients all day long. I run several uh, audiology clinics across the suburbs of Chicago. And it's my job to sit down with somebody, mainly seniors. I mean, my, the average age of the people I talk to is 75 to 80. And, and so it kind of gives me a unique view into the aging and often sometimes the dying process. And I was sitting with a lady, it's about two weeks ago, I'll, I'll say Doris, I'll protect the innocent here. Um, Doris was sitting and she's in her late 80s, really cute, fit little lady. Um, and she was sitting across from me and I was trying to kind of pull out of her what, she, what her problems were with her hearing. And she said, well, I just recently moved in with my daughter and uh, my, I'm irritating everybody by how loud my TV is. And it was one thing, I guess, to visit me when I did this, but now they're trying to live with me when I do this, and it's a problem. And she says, my grandkids, who I love being around, they talk back and forth to each other, and I can't hear them. They know when they talk to me that they'll talk a little louder, but I can't hear them, and I, I, feel, I feel embarrassed to ask them to repeat. And so she kind of stopped right there. And so it's my job to kind of try to pull more out of her. And so I said, well, what else do you do? Do you, do you have classes? Do you have... Um, do you have a book club? Do you play bridge with your friends? Do, do you go to church? What do you do? And I always throw that church thing in there because it's a pretty religious community in the suburb in Chicago, northwestern suburbs. And she said, no, I'm, I'm, I've always been kind of an introvert. I'm more of a family person. I don't really go out much. That's before I had hearing problems. And she said, uh, I, I, I haven't gone to church since I was in my 20s. And, and I 
I kind of thought that was an interesting detail, and I didn't, I didn't ask for anything further. But she elaborated. She felt the need to go on. And she said, I decided, I grew up going to church all the time, and I decided when I was 20-some years old that I was a good person, I made good choices, and I did not need to go to church anymore. And she, she just threw that out there. Um, and, I, and I thought, wow, she, she kind of embodies that, that behavior that the, the Hebrews had, that she thinks she's, she's owed a place at the table just by her apparent good behavior and her apparent good choices. And that's, that's kind of what the Hebrews had here. And so we cannot miss, we cannot miss the explosive nature of what Jesus said in the first five words of this passage. Jesus says, I am the true vine, not Israel. That's, that's revolutionary talk. When we read it, we don't hear that, but I'm sure the disciples might have looked at each other and said, can he just say that? Can he say that? Because later on, just several chapters later in your Bible in Acts, Stephen will be stoned for saying something similar. This is not a small statement, and that's how it would have hit the uh, disciples. You are not owed a place at the table with Jesus just because you have blood, just because you have certain skin, or just because you have good behavior. That's not how it works. So if you're taking notes, we're going to get past the first five words, I promise. Um, this, this section of eight verses, I think we can break it into three sections. The source, the journey, and the destination of the Christian life. The source of life is Jesus, the true vine. And then we have the journey. We have pruning, abiding and remaining, and we have asking and receiving. And then we have the destination or maybe the outcome. And there's two outcomes. There's either bearing fruit, much fruit, or there is removal of dead branches. So we're going to move on to the second, to the second part, the journey of the Christian life. So let's read the latter part of verse 2. To be, I guess. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So we've already established that none of us knows really anything about gardening except for one person. And so we need again to find out what, what is pruning. And, and so if you'll go with me on this, when I, I tried, when I read, what am I doing to this thing? <laughs> okay, when I read scripture, I try to kind of see word pictures in my mind. I, um, and so I imagine, if you'll, if you'll go with me here, uh, uh, this, this vineyard, and there's this, this farmer. Do you want me to switch? Okay. There's this farmer that um, he's moving through his vineyard, and he's, again, we, we got the weathered, handsome farmer with his overalls on, and I imagine kind of this Thomas Kincaid painting. I, I could have said Ansel Adams. I didn't, okay? So don't judge me. I said Thomas Kincaid. I know it's bad taste. And so he's moving through his vineyard with the sunset in the background. He's lovingly, he snips off a branch here. He snips off another branch there. And, and he, he, he touches the leaves and he grabs a grape here or there. And he ends the evening sipping on a Merlot, sitting on his veranda with his beautiful wife. Okay? That's pruning to me. That's what I saw. It turns out that's not at all what pruning is. Pruning is surprisingly violent. I ran to the internet to study this because that's the source of all knowledge and apparently for Bible study as well, just for you kids at home. Um, and so I saw pictures of before and after. There's these beautiful, you know, large vines and then there's this mangled husk that is left after the pruning happens. This is not just what you've seen the city of Evanston workers doing to the, uh, to the trees out, outside your house. This is barbaric. It is unnatural. They cut 
80 to 90% of the previous year's growth off the vine, so I'm told. It is, it is strangely unnatural to see what, what has happened here. Producing fruit comes apparently at great cost. Producing fruit costs the plant greatly. If we are a part of the true vine, we must be pruned. It's not hard to see the connection this is going to make to the Christian life. What is the Savior pruning out of you right now? Let's read like a couple more verses that, that don't use the word prune, but actually talk about this later in Scripture. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This next one we've all heard, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And one last one from the Old Testament, Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I feel like we can say all together here with Jesus' followers and how they said it in in, uh, John 6, this is a hard saying. Can we say that together? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But who else has the words of life? If you are on the true vine, you will be pruned. When the vine dresser takes his knife to our unnecessary and distracted limbs, we will bleed. We will mourn for the loss of things that we treasured, but we will bear fruit. How is God lovingly but possibly violently pruning you right now? I was talking to somebody uh, just recently who, who was talking about how parenting has been so disappointing to them. They have, for the last 16, 17 years, dropped everything, forsaken careers and interests and hobbies of their own to raise children and pour their life into these children. And there's so little return right now. There seems to be so little happening. And so God might be pruning that person to lean on him more and to trust him more. Maybe your health has been a problem. Maybe you've been passed over for a career. Maybe your um, Something you wanted is way out of reach. God is pruning the unnecessary, distracted limbs. If the, if the vine dresser does not do this, what happens year after year to the actual vine is that it will get larger, larger, leafier, and leafier, and less and less fruit. It must be done for a good gardener, and our God is that good gardener. So we have seen the source of all life, Jesus. He is the only source of life, not your blood, not your family, not your good works. It's Jesus, the true vine. We've seen the pruning that has to happen, the painful pruning, and we're moving on to abiding and remaining. Let's look at verse 3, and let's read this uh, 3 through 5. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
when I was six years old, I, uh, I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and my best friend at the time was named Matt. He was the pastor's son, and he was every bit of pastor's son. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a lot of fun. He definitely was, and he had just made a profession of faith, and it got me thinking about the things I had been taught uh, about heaven and hell and judgment and sin and Jesus, and so it, it spurred me to make my own profession of faith, and I think it was as genuine as a six-year-old can make. I believed I was sinful. I didn't have a hard time believing that. Uh, and if you knew me then, or if you know me now, you know that too. Um, and, I, and I believed that there was a hell, and I didn't want to go there, and I believed that Jesus could save me. So if you fast forward on to my teenage years, what, what I started to believe, and I'm not blaming anybody for this belief, but I started to kind of boil the Christian life down to a set of mental assertions. Jesus died, I placed my faith, you know, I, you know, God created the world. There's these mental assertions that a Christian believes. And then a set of ethics. I avoid these things. I try to do these things. And then church attendance. And I didn't do a lot of the evangelism, but I know that was a big part of it too. And that's what I believe. That's the Christian life. And I'm not, again, I'm not blaming necessarily my church or my parents, but that's what I came to know as uh, what it was to be a believer. It wasn't until I was 18 years old that I had a deeply spiritual uh, experience with Jesus and where I, I realized for the very first time, uh, and again, I, I believe I, I made a, a profession of faith at six, but at 18, I, I realized that Jesus would consume me that this was not just something I could attend and mentally say, that there was something mystical, supernatural, that would bring me into something new and make me into something that I was not before. And it changed me completely. Jesus is talking about this when he says, Abide in me and I in you. If you allow your Christian experience just to devolve into those mental assertions, or you, maybe you sit here today and every song and every scripture is about your personal battle with some sort of sin, and that's all it comes down to you. I got to avoid this thing. I got to avoid this thing. I got to stop doing this thing. That's not what it means to abide in Jesus. And as I was thinking about abiding and remaining, I had a hard time with this because I think you never accomplish this completely. And I remembered a book that I had read back in college, and it was, it's not even really a book, it's like a pamphlet, that, that I think this author, uh, this person embodies abiding and remaining. The book is called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Andrew. And I reread the whole thing just to kind of get my mind into this. And I wanted to read just a few quotes from this book to help illustrate. And I want you to listen for the abiding and remaining in this. Brother Lawrence insisted that to be constantly aware of God's presence, it is necessary to form the habit of continually talking with him throughout each day, to think that we must abandon conversation with him in order to deal with the world is erroneous. Instead, as we nourish our souls by seeing God in his exaltation, we will derive a great joy at being his. We also need to be faithful even in the dry periods, it is during those dry spells that God tests our love for him. He goes on to say, Sometimes I imagine that I'm a piece of stone waiting for the sculptor. And when I give myself to God this way, he begins sculpting my soul into the perfect image of his beloved son. He says, Simply present yourself each day to God as if you were a poor man knocking on a rich man's door. 
He is always with you. Just as you would be rude if you deserted a friend who was visiting you, why would you be disrespectful of God by abandoning his presence throughout your day? When the difficulties are at their worst, go to him humbly and lovingly as a child goes to a loving father and ask for help you need from his grace. The world, the flesh, and the devil wage a fierce and continuous war on our souls. If we weren't capable of humbly depending on God for assistance, our souls would be dragged down. This is the last one. We cannot show our loyalty to God more than by renouncing our worldly selves as much as a thousand times a day to enjoy even a single moment with him. Do you hear the abiding and the remaining he's talking about? It was his desire to, to act as if, to, to understand that God was with him all throughout his day. Trying to be a Christian without abiding and remaining is like trying to be born and stop breathing. It, beca- it's, it can't be done. It, it's a frustrating, miserable experience. And I've been there. Are you gulping, are you trying to gulp down a math, mouthful of the living water on a Sunday morning and then sip on sewage from the world all throughout the day, all while the water is right next to you, the living water? So let's, we've gone from the source to the pruning to the abiding and the remaining in this journey of the Christian life, and we're ending with uh, the journey here with asking and receiving. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this is one of those amazing, amazing promises in Scripture that if you rip it completely out of its context, it means something completely different. You cannot miss that this part comes after the sourcing of life, the pruning, the painful pruning of the vine dresser, and then the constant daily, hour by hour, moment by moment, abiding and remaining, and then the asking happens, and the receiving happens. This, the careful removal of unnecessary distractions and the pruning, the cleansing of the word, and the vital life-giving connection of abiding and remaining creates an environment where the believer is so in tune with their creator that whatever they ask for will be given because their wants have been changed. Your wants will be changed. How glorious is that? If you've ever known an addict or if you've loved an addict, if you've been an addict, then they desperately know their wants are broken, and they want those to change. Your wants will change. You will ask for things that are very different. You will want very different things. I am, I am always amazed at what my kids like to eat, the food they will eat, the food they won't eat. And my son, Caden, who's here tonight, um, they were all wondering who I was going to talk about. Um, uh, my son, Caden, here tonight, loves to rank things in his life. And so, you know, mac and cheese, this certain, well, it's this kind is above this kind, and well, that was good, but it's third down the list, and he likes to rank these things. He does it not only with food, but with other things. Right now, I could take my son, Caden, I could fly him to Italy, and we could travel by train and then a car to this tiny little hamlet along the coast that is known for making the world's best pizza. And they source only local ingredients grown on a certain mountainside. 
And they, they've been using the same recipes passed down from father to son, from father to son. And, and the same, this brick oven that was built generations ago has never been unlit. And it's been used for pizzas for generation to generation. And I could travel with there to this amazing gastronomic experience with my son, Caden. And we would finish our pizza. He would put down his fork. I doubt he used a fork. But we, he would put down his, he would wipe his mouth, and he would likely rank that pizza a distant second to Little Caesar's sausage thin crust pizza. <laughs> you were wondering when I was going to land that. Caden, that's the pinnacle of pizza for my son, Caden. There's nothing better. There's been many rivals, but they always get knocked down. You know where I'm going with this, right? Your wants will change. Your taste will change. I think that is so, so incredibly encouraging because we know deep down inside we want wrong things and we need a Savior. This abiding and this remaining, this pruning. And then, man, we can ask for things. We can ask and we will receive, but only after these other things have happened before. And so let's move on to the last section. Again, we've had the source of all life, the giver of all life, and continues to give life. In Jesus, the true vine, we've had the pruning. We now have the constant moment-by-moment abiding, remaining. We've asked and received during this time in the Christian experience. And now we've come to the destination or the outcome. There's two options. There's bearing fruit and there's removal. Let's look at the positive first. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pull in verse 16 from later in the chapter. Because it talks about this as well. You, do not, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In this Christian life, we are cultivated, pruned, and given life for a purpose. It's, it's not just to be a branch. It's not just to abide in the Father. God is a gardener. God wants fruit. God will produce fruit in Jesus. Israel didn't do it. Jesus is that true descendant that through us will produce fruit. He is not, in this context, he's not a national park ranger. He is not creating a space for wild and undisciplined plants. He has a purpose in you. You are saved. You are pruned. You are cleansed for a reason, to bear fruit. Let's listen to Isaiah 27, 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The Abrahamic covenant was all about this. You can trace this all throughout Scripture. Abraham was selected. His descendants were blessed to be a blessing. God will do this with you to bear much fruit. So what is the fruit we're talking about? And it may seem obvious, and it, and it somewhat is. The fruits of the Spirit. But actually, in the context, Jesus has just left the Last Supper. He's washed the disciples' feet. He knows what's ahead. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and eventually his leaving and the comforter coming. Jesus is preparing, giving them marching orders. He is trying to encourage them for his, his imminent departure from them and the hard times ahead. The context is Jesus' sacrificial love and death on the cross. Love is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. And so I'll just real quick, I'm going to read Galatians, the classic passage here, 522 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so you, you want to look at yourself tonight. This is a good exercise to do. Are you producing fruit? The fruit is not what earns you a place on the vine. That's ridiculous. James talks about this. Faith without works is dead. The works don't give you salvation. The fruit is you don't come to the front here and lay it down and say, okay, can I, can I come in? That's not how it works. But if you are on the true vine, he's going to produce fruit in you. And So examine yourself. Do you, are you producing fruit? Have you been avoiding the pruning? Not that we really can in the end. So the negative aspects. Let's look at verse 2a. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And skipping down to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Fruitless religion is useless to God. You coming here and you sitting here, it's useless. Your mental assertions, teenager Curtis, avoiding certain behaviors, that's useless to God. Life on the vine is all that matters that produces fruit. Jesus, we have, a, we have a, an example of this right here in the context. We've just seen one of the 12 leave the group and go betray Jesus. It's very clear from this passage that what he's talking about in these branches are people that come into these places and they come to small groups and they, they sing the songs and they mentally assert and they, they might even uh, share meals, but they're not truly on the vine because they're not producing fruit. Fruitless religion to God is useless. It's easy to focus on the negative aspects here, and, and, it, and it really got me down for a little bit, um, this, these thinking about, am I one of those branches? Am I, where is my fruit? Am I squeezing out like a silly little grape here and there, like, and just moving on and thinking that somehow that's, that's useful to my Savior? This is an extremely encouraging passage. It's uncommonly good news. The God who starts our life continues and remains giving us life. It is fine. And so you might be sitting here and saying, I, I can't produce fruit. I'm not talented. I can't play an instrument. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't prepare a sermon. Or I can't lead a small group. And I'm prone to sin. Oh my goodness, I'm prone to sin. And I wander constantly. Half the time I even doubt if this is true. You're, you might be thinking, I, I can't produce fruit. You're, you're talking to the wrong person. It's okay to doubt yourself. But don't you dare doubt your God. Don't you dare doubt the great gardener that has started your life. He will produce amazing fruit through you. This is encouraging stuff. Could it be that we sometimes are coming and, and, and trying to be on like a barely sustainable ivy drip of the true vine while gorging on massive amounts of just culture and entertainment and, and comforts? Could it be that's what it is? And we wonder why that when the pruning comes that we're so quick to, to abandon our faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When I was thinking about um, just, just how to end this, I want you to go away encouraged. And I, I, I thought of a song that from one of my favorite, favorite singer-songwriters, Andrew Peterson, and from his recent album, The Burning Edge of the Dawn, there's a song that is literally a meditation on these verses. Um, and, and I wanted to read just a, a section here from this song. 
He says, O God, I am furrowed like the field, torn open like the dirt, and I know that to be healed, that I must be broken first. I am aching for the yield that you will harvest from this hurt. Abide in me. Let these branches bear you fruit. Abide in me, Lord, as I abide in you. Let your word take root. Remove in me the branch that bears no fruit. And move in me, Lord, as I abide in you. Let's resolve tonight to submit ourselves to the pruning of our Savior and to rest in the abiding that he offers us. Let's pray. God, I I just again ask that you do that supernatural thing, that when we're coming here, we're singing, we're listening, we open our Bibles, we read them, we study doctrine, but in the middle of that, God, you give us life. And it's mystical, it's mysterious, it's supernatural, and that's us getting life from you, you giving life to us. God, please do that tonight. Stir us up. Cut into, cut off the unnecessary things, and I know I don't know what I'm asking for. It could be hurtful, it could be painful, but God, I I have nowhere else to turn. You have the words of life. Amen.